and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, it is definitely feeling like autumn now. I have to say, I did chicken out of going clear around show jumping on Sunday on the basis that it was a bit too wet. And uh, Alfie the Connemara Pony has had his second clip of the season already, so we are definitely getting ready for winter. Our interview this week is with the new national dressage champion, Emil Forey, who gives an insight into his long career in horses. It's a tough sport. You know, you have to be resilient and you have to learn to take every knockdown you get as, as an opportunity to stand up and get stronger and, and, and go again. We'll talk about the Show Jumping Nations Cup final in Barcelona, as well as looking at moving horses post-Brexit and head collar safety. Finally, equestrian psychology coach Charlie Unwin talks about identity and drive and their impact on performance. Actually, we are more than capable of doing great things, but often what gets in the way of our consistency to be able to do them is this inner voice, this expectation we have of ourselves. So, clip on your number bib, let's get started. Hello, I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound. I'm joined today by one of the most familiar names in British dressage, Emil Forey. Emil is one of Britain's top international dressage riders. He's been competing at the very highest level of the sport for almost 30 years. And in that time, he's ridden at two Olympic Games, four World Equestrian Games and six European Championships. Most recently, though, he was crowned the new British national champion with Dono DiMaggio. Emil, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. Um, Lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. As we just established, your dressage CV is incredibly impressive. Your most recent accolade, though, is your national championships title at last month's national dressage championships at Summerford. Um, It's not the first time you've won this title, but it's been a little while since the last. Is that right? (laughs) Yes, people keep reminding me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to be the next person to remind you. So was it? back in 94 if I got that right that you last won the title ouch (laughs) (laughs) yes it is sadly Well, it's very exciting that you are our new British national champion again. Just tell us a little bit about how that weekend unfolded for you. It's a couple of weeks ago now and and what it felt like to win that title with your lovely Dono DiMaggio. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was it was great. Um, I mean, I was given the option to go to Aachen um, for the Nations Cup and I just decided, you know what? No, I'd rather actually compete at the Nationals and, and support the Nationals. Um, because, you know, so much work has gone into it um, and, mm. and they pulled it together in such a short space of time. And, um, and I really wanted to ride there. I think it's so important for the sport that we are seeing, you know, in, in this country as well. And, and it was, you know, it was such an incredible venue. They did such an amazing job. Um, mm. It had such a, a real international feel to it. The, 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 the arena had a sort of stadium feel to it. Yes, of course, they, they moved the Nationals from Stoneleigh Park, where it has been for, for quite a few years now, to Summerford Park in Cheshire. And yeah, you're not the first person I've heard to say that the atmosphere in that main ring was really great. It was brilliant. It had sort of the, a real feel to a championship for once. No, it's so lovely. And just tell us about your, your performances that weekend, how you, how you sort of felt in the, in the tests with, with Dono. 
Um, yeah, I mean, he felt amazing. I have to say he was um, slightly hot in the Grand Prix um, because he's been sort of, you know, he was reserved for the Olympics and, and had to go into quarantine and then reserved for, for the Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I sort of had to keep him ticking over, but I didn't want to keep him sort of, you know, uh, in, in sort of full work all the time. Um, so he was possibly a little bit too fresh in the Grand Prix and I had mistakes in the in in my changes so that cost me dearly but um and i i slightly overcooked the working in a little bit it was quite warm and mm. um possibly i did sort of five ten minutes more than i should have uh, but in the freestyle he was just electric he was yeah. in such good form but he was really with me he was a sort of a hundred percent with me and i just he gave me a fantastic feel Oh, it's so lovely to hear. And I know that your freestyle was a bit of a, a crowd favourite as well. And, and everyone that I've spoken to just loved watching it. So, Oh, that's nice. Mm, no, it's lovely that, that you came out on top and, and, and with that title. Um, I was just going to say, could you tell us a little bit more about Donna DiMaggio? He was your ride at the World Equestrian Games in 2018. As you've mentioned, he was reserved for the Tokyo Olympics for the Europeans. He was in our Spotlight series in the magazine earlier this summer. Mm. And I remember you seeing then that he was just such a wonderful horse in pretty much every way, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've been riding him since he was eight. Um, uh, when he was still owned by by the Kusselman family, mm. and um, I, he was one of those horses I formed an immediate bond with. Um, he was uh, he's a absolute giant of a horse. He's eighteen one hands high, wow. and um, the first time I rode him, I just had jeans and, and trainers on, and I was told just to see what I felt. And literally, in within two minutes of riding him, I thought, "Gosh, I've never felt anything quite like it." He's a very, very powerful horse, but he's also, he's just a very, very sweet horse. You know, he's got a really kind temperament. He's so easy in, in every way to deal with. Um, yeah. It's just a, a really, really straightforward horse. But, um, you know, in the, in the freestyle, he really comes alive and, and, and gave me just such a magnificent feel. Mm, he has such good rhythm, doesn't he? That, that sort of always looks great with the music. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's funny because for such an enormous horse, he's actually very, very light-footed. Yeah, and the music just, I think, complements him so well. Oh, yeah, no, he is such a wonderful horse to watch. Um, I'm interested to see what you, how, how you would sort of compare him to, to Virtue, who is the last horse that you won this particular title with. I mean, how, how can you sort of compare those two horses at diff very different parts of your career? Yeah, I mean, with, with Virtue, it was all sort of so new. You know, Virtue was my first Grand Prix horse I ever had. And he was a very, very different character. He was quite a sort of introverted character when I first, you know, met him and first got to ride him and, and a little bit lazy. Um, and in those days, gosh, I had so much more time. <laughs> I, spent, I spent a long, long time with Virtue, you know, riding him on the gallops and, and all sorts of things to to get to know him and and he was a genius horse in Piaf and Passage as in mm. fact is is Dono but he he was obviously he was a lot smaller he was only sort of 16 <laughs> hands um, I was also a lot skinnier in those days <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they, they're very different 
characters as as horses, but they they both had the sort of excelled in 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 their piaf and passage mm. and of course that's so great to have a horse who excels in that particular area because there are so many marks to be picked up in the piaf and passage isn't there absolutely and especially now that they coefficient i wish i had him now with his because <laughs> he, he had such a great piaf right and passage so if i could have had him now with the coefficient marks <laughs> you know yeah. hopefully things would have been a bit different <laughs> Oh gosh. Well, you've, you have had such a successful career and I just wanted to see whether you could share any particular highlights, you know, perhaps a highlight from your time competing virtue or, or something since, because your career does span quite a long time and I'm sure <laughs> there is very much more of it to come, but you've just had so much experience and, and done so many wonderful things. Gosh, there's so many highlights, really. You know, with horses, um, every horse is special and every horse has got his own particular story and his mm. own particular sort of thing. I suppose my, my greatest highlight ever was was winning the individual medal with Virtue because he was he was so special to me and, and, you know, it was something that I dreamt of ever since I can remember. So, you know, winning my first medal was, was great. And that was uh, 1993 Europeans? Correct, yes. Yeah. Individual bronze, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and then, gosh, uh, I suppose winning our first gold medal as a team in, in Rotterdam was another real highlight for me. Um, I was riding Alma Gardens Marquis at the time. And, you know, we'd been battling for so long, for so many years. And to, to get to that point where we actually took home a gold medal was probably one of the greatest highlights of my life. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been incredibly special. And that was alongside Charlotte Gijarda and Carl Hester and Laura Tomlinson, or Laura Bettelsheimer, as she was at the time, mm. um, in 2011. That leads me on really nicely, actually, to my next question, which was, obviously, over the course of your career, you've seen British dressage change so much. And the fact that we are now, you know, winning medals and we're real top contenders in the world of dressage. How does it feel to have seen such a transformation over the years? Well, incredible, because if you think we used to always be be lucky if we came last <laughs> in the past. Um, and, and it's really not that long a period of time in, in the great scheme of things mm. to to have seen how how it's progressed um, to the point where, you know, now we are the nation that people are most scared of. You know, we are a real force to be reckoned with. Um, and I think a, a, a great deal of that uh, success really uh, comes from, from UK sport and the national lottery and, and, and world class, um, that we've been so lucky to have had that, that extra funding, to have put in place a support uh, mechanism for, for the riders that I think has given them, all of us, such a great help to, to focus on, on you know, our performances. Yeah, for sure. It's so incredibly valuable. I was I was going to ask you, what do you think is sort of needed to keep this momentum going into the next decade to keep these medals coming to get back on the top of a podium as a as a team? I, I think we have such a, a great depth of, of riders now. And I think the fact that, that we're a nation that, that have got horsemanship in our you know, in our being. Mm. Um, and that together with the fact that, you know, we've, we've learned, we've, we've actually learned and we've actually, you know, been out there and looked and watched and learned. And uh, the quality of, of our riding together with the sort of horsemanship element, 
I think is, is what has, has made us such a strong force. And of course, it does all start, I guess, at the beginning. And I just wanted to touch on you. You set up quite a few years ago now the the Emil Forey Foundation, didn't you? Which mm. helps introduce children to riding and and sort of remove some of those barriers to some young people entering the sport. Tell me more about that area and, and how you feel about getting more people into the sport from an earlier age. Well, I mean, I originally started it because of of hearing about so many riding schools um, having to close down because of lack of funding, lack of uh, um, ability to, to, to just keep head above water with business rates on indoor schools that, that our government seemed to keep on wanting to keep there when, when all the rest of Europe uh, riding schools are, are exempt of, of um, business rates. And um, I, I know myself that I started riding at a riding school and, and I sort of did a bit of research and, and found out that, you know, so many of, of our top riders, show jumpers, eventers, dressage riders, all started riding in riding schools. Right. Um, and I felt that so many of them were going by the wayside and, and not, um, not encouraging children to, to, to ride. Also because a lot of these children uh, uh, felt that it wasn't accessible for them. And um, together with Marianne Horn, I then started the foundation. And what we focused on more was inner city children and children that from, from less privileged backgrounds that um, under normal circumstances just simply wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to have a, a, a ride. And um, yeah, 14 years later, and at the moment we're sort of currently paying for nearly, I think, 14,000 children nationwide to, to have riding lessons. Gosh, that's so absolutely amazing. Um, and it must feel great to know that you've made such a difference and really, you know, reached into these children's lives and being able to offer them something that, as you say, they might not have ever had the chance to experience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not about how it makes me feel. It's more <laughs> about, um, you know, actually giving children that opportunity. Mm. And we've done so many studies has been made as to the actual social impact that it has. And we get a tremendous amount of feedback from uh, uh, school teachers because we do it all through school. So the children that, that, that ride, they have to have 100% school attendance in, to, be, to be, you know, able to join the program. Okay. Um, and, and we've had such enormous feedback from, from their teachers and from headmasters and mistresses that say that the, 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 the social effect it has on these children is incredible. And we've had some wonderful, you know, stories of, of you know, a, a, one lad that um, was expelled from school uh, at, at one point and, and excluded and through his social worker came on the programme, showed a great affinity with, with riding. But he, I mean, he was a real terror and a, and a real sort of tear away. Yeah. And he's now a jockey and, and working in the industry. He's, um, we paid for him to, to, um, to learn to ride and he then joined an apprentice jockey scheme and, and he's now a working jockey. So, you know, there's many stories like that that, that, that proves that it, you know, horses has that impact on, on children's lives if they just get the opportunity to actually get to do it, get to yeah. ride. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's so amazing to hear, if, yeah, like you say, the impact that, that you can have. 
Also looking to the future, looking a bit more back towards your own career now, just wanted to ask you a bit about some of your younger horses that you have coming up in the ranks behind the lovely Dono and others that perhaps we should be all looking out for this winter, next year. Um, <laughs> well, not as many as I'd like, to be honest, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, I was I was a bit silly in the management of my career. I didn't um, I didn't get enough of my own horses early enough in my career to to really have a great string. But there is there's Shiloh, who's a, a Grand Prix horse now, who's coming on, and um, I have a fantastic six-year-old uh, uh, called Total Impact. Well, in fact, he's five, but he'll be six next year. Right. So if I'm not too old and decrepit by the, <laughs> by the time he reaches Grand Prix, but I'm also trying to to focus a lot of my attention uh, uh, on Tom now. Mm. Tom, who's my rider, who rides for me. Tom Good, um, that that's is, correct. Isn't it? Mm. Yeah, Tom Good. He's been working for me and riding for me for for eleven years now, I think. Mm and um, has trained several Grand Prix horses and and quite a lot of my focus now is also going to to give him an international career. Right. Um, he's got a string of absolutely top top class young horses at the moment and um, also his Grand Prix horse that I own together with Sam Geddes who's um, doing uh, his first international for quite a while since the whole oh, COVID lovely. thing. Oh, lovely. Who, who's that? Which horse it's is a, that? It's a horse called Dior. Okay, yeah. Mm. We've had some problems with him, some health issues in the past, but touch wood, at the moment he's on, on great form and heading off to, to Le Mans. Oh, that's really exciting. Um, and fab, you know, fab to hear that you are giving you know tom so many opportunities because i know that obviously you like you said you grew up riding in a riding school and and i imagine that you look back and sort of credit the opportunities and the people that helped you along the way with with launching your own career absolutely i mean i've been so fortunate in my life that there's been so many just kind and generous people who've indulged me you know my passion um and and have you know given me horses to ride and supported and helped me in the whole process um that it, it's lovely to be in a position where i can do that for somebody else and tom is is, a, is so worthy he's a really talented rider and and a, a, you know just absolutely loves the sport and is very passionate about it so it's it's lovely to give somebody else that chance yes yeah absolutely and i just wanted to ask what sort of advice i guess would you give to others who are trying to make it up the up the rungs of the ladder in in dressage perhaps trying to get to grand prix or, or you know trying to further their grand prix career or either even a bit further down the levels just trying to make a career in dressage yes grow a very very thick skin <laughs> <laughs> um you know it, it, it's a tough sport it's a really really tough sport and and the biggest advice i can give anybody is just train find a good find a good trainer and and be resilient you know throughout my career there's been so many ups but so many downs as well mm. and you have to learn you know the fact that i'm still here 30 years later um, means that it's you know you have to be resilient and you have to learn to to take every knockdown you get as as an opportunity to stand up and get stronger and and, and go again um, but you know for, for you to become a successful rider you need a trainer you need a good trainer and I think that's a little bit which is one of the reasons why the sport has grown so much in this country is that people realize that now 
and and that they do train you know that they learn to find uh, a, a trainer that they believe in and that believes in them and um and to stick with them yeah so important isn't it nobody can mm. make it in the sport all by themselves you know you need that support don't you absolutely so back to lovely Dono DiMaggio. When are you next planning to uh, to have him out? When can we look forward to seeing him in action again? Well, don't really know at the moment because <laughs> he's he's owned by Theo Livanos, who's a who's a Greek girl who was actually meant to be riding him herself, um, but she had a, a very unfortunate uh, um, incident that she uh, she got a bone infection and had to have a, a, an extremely serious operation, um, and, and that took her out for a year. So um, she's now at university and, and, and recovering from her surgery, um, so she probably will be taking back the reins now and, and um, aiming herself for the World Championships next year. But because she's at university, I think I will probably still be riding him um, most of the time and, and probably still do the odd competition with him. But as far as championships are concerned, that, that is now uh, it's her chance now. Oh, well, it's lovely to, to hear that she will be taking back the reins and that hopefully we will see him doing well with her just as, as he has with you. Absolutely. Emil, thank you so much for coming on the Horse and Town podcast. It's been great to chat and very excited to see some of your up and coming horses and, and Tom Good as well on, on his lovely horses in the future. Thank you very much. So I'm joined now by my colleague Jennifer Donald, Horse and Hounds show jumping editor. Jen was in Barcelona last week at the Longines FEI Jumping Nations Cup final. I think it was your first trip out of the country since before COVID. Is that right, Jen? Oh my goodness, I was so excited. I cannot tell you to get on a plane, ignoring all the paperwork and the tests and everything else that has to go into traveling abroad these days. That was a whole new experience. But yeah, um, to get back out onto the global stage and, and see real life show jumping, five star show jumping as well. It was, uh, it was fantastic to be out and about anyway. Well, give us the headlines. First of all, Jen, who won that Nations Cup final? So the Dutch one, um, it's, uh, it's a fantastic sort of end of season finale for the Nations Cup series. Um, so 15 teams qualified. The top eight from Friday's qualifier go through to Sunday's, you know, big decider. And uh, as always, it's such a thrilling competition. It's sort of one round, quick fire, you know, you're in or you're out. And, and the Dutch are... They, they haven't really had the best year. You know, it's, it's not been a sort of stellar one for them, surprisingly. But they came out, they were all guns blazing. It came down to the wire. Ireland chased them all the way home and there was only one penalty in it in the end. So, I mean, it's heartbreak for one and fantastic for the, for the Dutch. But um, I have so much admiration for the team. They were so ecstatic. You could see when they realised they'd won, it, was, it all came down to Harry Smolders, who was the final rider, and he had to jump clear and he did it. Um, and the celebrations behind all that was just immense. Um, and, you know, they're always, they're fantastic side. They've got such good team spirit, great ethic. All the riders want to jump for their country. You know, Rob Ahrens, the team manager says, you know, he never has a problem fielding a team because everybody wants to be there. And you can really see it in them, that, you know, jumping for their country is, is foremost in their minds. And it really showed through on that day. It was a great win for them. Mm. And I think Arlen lost out on a time fault. Is that right? 
That's right. I know it's absolute heartbreak and you can't fault them. They they rode for their lives that day. They they were they were the defending champions. They won in back in 2019 the last time that the competition was held. Um so they had that to sort of live up to as well, but four super performances on the Sunday. They they'd ridden really well as well on the Friday to qualify. So um I mean they were thrilled in themselves. Dara Kenny jumped a double clear. He was one of only three combinations to share. They get a double clear bonus, which is very lucrative if you can jump double clear over the weekend. And Dara was one of them with his he's got a super grey stallion VDL Cartello. Um, and he was absolutely thrilled to jump a, a, his second double clear. He, you know, he took his hat off. He was doing his own little lap of one around the ring. It was it was brilliant to watch, and he was absolutely thrilled. But yeah, just afterwards, I went back back to the sort of collector ring. There was a sort of air of disappointment among them. You know, the slightly hunched shoulders to finish second by one time penalty. The is just yeah, it's heartbreaking. But you cannot fault them. They did they did really well. I think they should be very proud of themselves. Yeah, gutting. And I, but I bet hopefully when they look back on their performance, sort of, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, they'll think, actually, you know, the horses jumped well, although it was so frustrating to be so close. Exactly. And again, for Ireland, it hasn't been the best year, you know, so to come out and, and show that they can perform on the, on the world stage at, at such a high level and do it really well as well, I think it's what they needed. And, you know, they can come back out again next year, hopefully uh, all guns blazing. Okay, and what happened to Britain, Jen? So it didn't start too well, I have to say. On Friday night, the top eight teams, as I say, go through to Sunday and the bottom seven teams compete in Saturday's consolation prize, basically. And Great Britain finished 10th of the 15 teams on Friday, which meant that they didn't make the cut. But they were so close, actually, to making the, you know, the final on Sunday. They were only one penalty away from it. But, um, you know, you're in or you're out. So they had to sort of re- go back, regroup and come back out fighting again on Saturday night. And as you quite often see in these in this competition, they came back. They were they were absolutely fighting, as John Whitaker said. You know, he was he was really impressed. There was a young team. Um, John Whitaker was the sort of senior member, sixty six years old, and then we had Emily Moffat and Harry Charles, who are in their early twenties, and Holly Smith, who's a great team stalwart, but she's only in her thirties. So it was a massive mix of of ages in that in that squad. But they came out. Harry Charles again jumped another clear, and the first three riders had such an unassailable lead that John Whitaker didn't even have to jump. So um, it was great. Yeah, so Great Britain got that victory they needed on Saturday night. And I think it was it was much needed. It hasn't been the best year again for Great Britain. So to come out, I think Di Lampard, she said she was so proud of her team and it was great to, to get a really good victory. Unfortunately, it wasn't the victory we all wanted on the Sunday night, but a victory is a victory and they did uh, really well to get that. Mm. And there was sort of at the other end of the scale in that Saturday class, quite a serious penalty if you finished at the bottom of the tree, wasn't there? That's it. Yeah, we've got a slightly different uh, format this year because the Nations Cup has been slightly depleted. We've lost, you know, some of the key dates like Hickstead and uh, Dublin. So um, the relegation that always happens at the end of the year came down to the bottom team from the top 10 
teams who are in Division One. Great Britain's in Division One, um, and so we'd left on Saturday night with five teams all fighting for relegation. And um, yeah, it was it was really really tough. Unfortunately, it was Italy in the end who got relegated, so they'll be down in Division Two next season. But Switzerland, who are the European champions, they were sort of struggling it was real shock to see you know they'd been absolute heroes a few weeks ago and to come in to the nation's cup and they just weren't performing at their best and and they came quite close to being the team that was relegated which would have been so difficult for them but yeah there was a lot to play for you know Great Britain was in there fighting for to avoid relegation as well against you know France and and other nations as well so yeah there was a whole new element of pressure so all the riders did extremely well to to cope with that I think. Mm, and I know that, um, you know, for those teams that do get knocked down into Division 2, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because the riders then don't have the opportunities to dump at the best shows and it's hard to get the practice that you need to pull yourself back up again. That's it. And, and you know, you've got people like Ben and Ben Mayer and Scott Brash who will always get into these big shows. But for everybody else, you know, you need to be on a team at these five-star shows to get that kind of experience and for our up-and-coming young riders it's absolutely key so especially when the championships start to get more um, important again you know next year we've got the world championships and then we're starting to think about the next cycle of olympics and things so yeah it's absolutely crucial that great britain remained in division one and we did so yep we're as david lampard said you know she she wants to be out of the starting blocks super quick next year and hopefully next year's nation's cup season will be a lot better than this one mm. i think it's really obvious talking to you jen how varied the form can be in show jumping you know talking about switzerland there going down talking about the dutch coming up talking about ireland coming up the sport can be i think it's the least form driven actually of the (laughs) sort of three olympic disciplines and teams can be up and down and up and down it's so exciting well it is exciting yeah it does come at the end of it i mean it's been such a crazy season you have to say you know we've had tokyo olympics european championships i think any team manager that can still field a top team at this stage in the season you know uh, horses are tired riders are busy you know it's it's a super busy sort of tail end of the season anyway you've got so much going on let alone the championships in another team competition so um yeah we saw even sort of sweden belgian all you know all these sort of top names they did well but you know they just weren't showing that dominance that they've shown you know earlier in the season and stuff so it was a real it was a real interesting mix of who's doing well and who's who's slightly struggling at the moment so it was it was it's always interesting it keeps us on our toes anyway (laughs) (laughs) and final question jen just looking at the place of the nation's cup in show jumping as a whole i know that it can be challenging for some nations as you say this year we've had a lot of championships but also to compete with the global champions tour in terms of having the best riders wanting to ride for your country rather than riding for that real big prize money how does the nation's cup fit into show jumping in the modern sport it is tricky i think a lot of um for the older generation john whitaker was very quick to sort of point out you know it's for him jumping for your team is always the pinnacle you know it's it's the best thing and and the dutch riders as well said afterwards you know as a sportsman you cannot beat going out to ride for your country that you know there's just no greater feeling it's often asked you know is there too much going on elsewhere? Is the prize money in different competitions, is that just too tempting for riders? Are we, are we losing the, the top riders to that? And, you know, it, it is seen, you know, sometimes we do miss out, you know, certain riders are 
heading off left, right and centre. It is the really busy sort of tail end of the year as well. Riders do have tour and um, commitments. You know, they they need to be various places. Not all of them have the horsepower as well to, to be at all these shows. So I think the general feeling is that the Nations Cup's still hugely important but it you know it, it is having to fight for its place in the calendar i would say and um yeah no it's doing all right you know they're moving with the times and and you've still got riders enough riders that respect it and want to be part of that so um yeah i'm a i'm a bit of a traditionalist i always love it i think uh, i can't imagine jumping for your country there must be no greater feeling and i'm glad that we still get to see that and instill that amongst our younger riders as well Mm, I have to say a good Nations Cup is a great, great competition to watch. And I do really enjoy the team show jumping both at Nations Cups and at Championships. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for joining us today. You can read a lot more from Jen in this week's Horse and Hound, her full report from Barcelona. But thank you for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your experiences from Barcelona with us. Thank you. So for today's news review, I'm joined by two of my colleagues. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hi, Eleanor. How's it going? Oh, all good. Um, I'm a bit injured because I did an unscheduled ground inspection uh, the other day, which is never a bonus. <laughs> that is not ideal. Did I read on social media that you were maybe trying to ride your horse bareback? <laughs> yeah, there there was. I won't go into why because it would take too long, but there was a, a logical reason for doing that. And um, I was sort of trotted uh, about halfway up the long side and probably should have thought before I got on bareback that this is a mare who, whenever she doesn't like anything or, or does her reaction to anything is just go faster. And she just picked up canter and I was like this is okay I can sit this and then she just went faster and faster and faster and faster and I sat probably three or four times around the school and thought I'm gonna have to bail out soon or I'm gonna be in the ejector seat (laughs) 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 and I don't know if I did bail out or just came out the side door but it doesn't make much difference to how hard you land on your backside (laughs) Dear. Okay, so sore backside for Eleanor. We also yep. have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you doing, Lucy? I'm doing very well, thank you, Pippa. I've been I've been racing this weekend, which was nice. Um, Equine Productions kindly invited me along to Ascot on Saturday uh, to watch racing, and then to watch an early preview of a film that they've they've created with backing from the Peter O'Sullivan Charitable Trust, the Professional Jockeys Association, and the Even Kill Foundation, which is called The Fall. And for any of our listeners that are listening on the day this podcast comes out it's on on 7th October on Sky Sports Racing at 10 o'clock and also on demand and it's a really powerful film actually I've been thinking a lot about it since since Saturday and yeah I'm going to be writing something about it too so really interesting weekend um yeah back on the news desk for this week Great. Well, I had a good day on Saturday. I was um, lucky enough to be invited by Andrew Hoy and his wife, Steffi, to go to their sort of post-Tokyo party. And um, it's the kind of thing that weirdly, maybe not weirdly, but we journalists don't really get invited to that sort of thing. Everyone always says, oh, you know, do you party with the riders? But always at events, we're super busy and it's not really like that. But it was really kind and and generous of um, Andrew and Steffi to invite us to join them. It was mostly a day for their owners, particularly Paula and David Evans, who own Vasily de Lassos and they showed all their horses um, as well as their children's ponies to the to the people who were there and then had some drinks and nibbles and we were able to wander through the stables and um, pet all the horses so that was lovely um, and have a really good chat so it was a nice thing to be invited to be part of oh also I got to wear Andrew's medals and get a picture wow that's cool that is amazing (laughs) and weren't the medal biscuits 
Oh yeah, so not only did I get to wear the real medals, indeed there were biscuits in the shape of the medals. Like they were all like beautifully decorated for the gold, for the um, bronze and silver medals that Andrew won in Tokyo. So yes, we came home with some special biscuits, having also worn the Tokyo medals. So basically, I was made up with having a picture with the medals and some biscuits and made my day. <laughs> right, Lucy, onto the serious news. We're coming to you first today. We're going to talk about a story about moving animals post-Brexit. Obviously, movement and Brexit are in the mainstream news at the moment with the fuel crisis, but this is specifically a story about horses and, and moving them around. Can you give us a bit of a summary of what's happened here? Yes, I can. Um, so this news story kind of focuses on an inquiry by the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee. It's a report, part of that inquiry, which scrutinises the impact of the post-Brexit world on moving animals across borders between Britain and the EU. So all kinds of animals, but horses have a big chunk in that report. And it's punchy reading, um, and it does highlight a number of key areas that we've been writing about here at Horse and Hound for a long time, such as equine ID, issues surrounding waiting times at borders, um, problems with the paper system as well. Okay, so there are things that we, we know about but have now been sort of formalised into this report. And it struck me reading your story that it's about equines at sort of opposing ends of the horse world. There's some talk about horses which are potentially being sent to slaughter. And then at the other end of the scale, it's about high health status horses, as they're called, presumably meaning really elite competition horses. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on that for us? Yes, you're right, Pippa. So it is kind of focusing on on both ends there, which are which are both affected by by the new rules in terms of moving animals across borders. Um, it's about keeping the competition, racing, and breeding industries moving, while also protecting the welfare of horses at that, as you say, the other end of that scale. And what was really interesting to me is that this report, it sets out actual timelines in its recommendations. So they're not open-ended suggestions. And that was quite refreshing to see as a journalist. Um, and I think perhaps the most important lines that I took from the whole report are where it states that obvious and ready solutions that could be put in place if there is political will to do so on both sides for many issues highlighted, including moving high health status horses across borders. And another really interesting line that I thought um, from this report was that the introductions and laws and regulations to protect animal welfare is important but ultimately meaningless if they're not enforced and that is something that welfare organisations, industry bodies, us at Horse and Hound have been going on about for years that without enforcement you know what is the point of having having rules and laws there so it was really interesting to see that has been spelt out in this report um, and in the recommendations to DEFRA. Mm. And what do people want to see happen next? You know, those inside the industry, what are the next steps to improving the situation and the problems and, and what sort of considerations are there in doing that? So I think probably the key things that our readers need to be aware of to sum up this is it 47 pages, 48 pages um, into a snapshot here. Uh, the point, firstly, that the report finds the current paper system of equine ID is not fit for purpose. It states that it's outdated and fragmented paper systems enable fraud. Um, so that is key point number one. Um, secondly, it states that Border Force has no intelligence on how many horses are being moved across borders under false pretenses. Um, and that once the scale of that has been established, DEFRA has been given a year to set out a plan to address it. 
And then moving on to the sort of issues we've been seeing sort of more recently, since the end of the Brexit transition period, we've been hearing about issues surrounding board waiting times um, for horses travelling uh, from Britain uh, to the EU. And so DEFRA has been urged to work with the EU and relevant other bodies to come up with a replacement for the tripartite agreement, um, which existed before Britain left the EU. Um, and to give a sort of very brief summary of what the tripartite agreement was, it was an agreement arrangement really that facilitated ease of movement for those high health status horses that we were talking about earlier uh, between Britain, France and Ireland. DEFRA has also been told to develop a funded action plan to enforce equine ID rules with a consultation published within the next three months and an action plan decided three months after that consultation's ended. So it's important to note as well that these recommendations and the report has been welcomed by World Health Welfare and the Thoroughbred Brexit Steering Group, um, among others in the industry and I really hope it is going to bring about some change and that I'm not being naive in saying that I've been you know writing about these issues as sort of the news desk and other people at Horse Hound have for, for quite a long time and it would be really nice to be writing about how the situation is improving um, rather than what the issues are if that makes sense and I'm certainly going to be following up with DEFRA to find out what their reaction is to this report and recommendations and what plans they have and I'll be bringing you news when um, when I hear more on that. Well it does sound like a positive as you say Lucy that they've got those real timelines in the plan it's not just recommendations which are open-ended I think that's quite hopeful isn't it? I hope so I hope so and I hope I'm not being as I said naive in, in finding that hopeful but certainly better than not seeing timelines I think. Well, thank you for labouring at the uh, coalface of the 47 or 48 page report <laughs> to uh, summarise this for us, Lucy. It's good to have your, your insight on it. Eleanor, you have been looking at a story this week about head collar safety. Um, what's, what's this all about? It's some research, is that right? Yeah, and it's actually, um, regular readers might remember about a month ago, we covered the, uh, the first study, which was just about, um, they talked to five and a half thousand riders and industry professionals about head collar use and safety and they found about nearly a third of people um, had reported incidents uh, as a result of wearing a head collar which included um, 167 equine deaths so they looked at they, they obviously wanted to look at, and, and they found there was a lack of sort of guidance and standards uh, safety standards for, for head collars and safety devices so they looked into it more and this is David Marlin, Jane Williams, Kirsty Pickles and Roberta Ferro de Godoy and they looked at how much force it took to, to break or open um, a whole range of, of head collars and safety devices. And what did they find out from doing that? So they found that, I mean, some things were, were as maybe expected, so that the safety head collars opened under less force than it took to break the leather ones. And then that in turn was less than the force that took uh, to break the synthetic head collars. But they found this uh, cause for concern in, in the inconsistency in the pressure under which the items broke or opened. So my physics knowledge is very rusty because it was a good few years since I did it at school. But, but essentially there was too great a variation in the force that it took to break the same head collar, the same type of head collar twice, which means then, uh, you know, as, as Dr. Williams said, because you don't know when it's going to fail, you're just hoping it's fit for purpose. And, and that included things like they tested baler twine, which everyone, you know, I was always taught to use that because it's safer, because it will break. But there was even too much inconsistency in the force it took to break the baler twine. 
Mm. And of course, baler twine can vary a lot, can't it? You uh, get it, you know, thick, thicker bits and thinner bits. And if you leave it out to uh, weather a bit before you use it, that can make it thinner. So obviously, as you say, inconsistencies there. Um, were there any useful recommendations for owners coming out of the study? Is there anything that we can actually practically put into action right now from it? Yeah, so Dr. Marlin said, um, I mean, they hope other recommendations that will come for this is sort of more research and then hopefully to come out with some some guidance and more information. But Dr. Marlin said that he would recommend using a safety head collar and a safety device. So, so baler twine or something either between the head collar and the rope or the rope and where you tie the horse to, because if if say you've just got your synthetic head collar tied up to a piece of baler twine what happens if the head collar itself gets caught on something or the horse god forbid gets its foot stuck in the head collar then the baler twine isn't really going to help mm, well thank you eleanor i think also uh, one of the researchers said to you that um, sometimes we underestimate people's desire to do the best by their horses and if there was a range with more information about safety and when it would break, I think I'll be more likely to look there. So interesting that they think that people really want to do the right thing. They just need the right information yeah. and products out there. Yeah, definitely. If that was if that range was about, then I would look there too. Well, thank you very much, Eleanor. And thank you to Lucy for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by NAF, developed and recommended by vets and nutritionists. GastriVet from NAF is five star for protecting and soothing your horse's stomach. As fed by Emil Fori to Dono DiMaggio, GastriVet gives your horse the scope for five star performance. Now we're going over to performance psychologist and mental coach Charlie Unwin. Charlie works across sport, business and the military and helps riders to optimise their performance from the inside out in training and in competition. He's passionate about working with equestrians because the horse's performance is an extension of the riders. His clients won an incredible four gold medals at the recent Olympics in Tokyo, as well as three silvers and one bronze. Over to you, Charlie. Hello, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about identity and drive. Now, identity is probably best summarised by the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And although we don't often think about this, this becomes incredibly important when it comes to performing at our best on the horse. It seems to manifest itself in ways that perhaps we're not always conscious of. And yet, if we don't work on our, our identity, if we don't work on that story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves, that inner voice that guides us through everything that we do, then we can sometimes sabotage our own efforts. Now, a brilliant story that really nicely sums this up was told to me by a coach who I worked with many moons ago. This coach was coaching a young dressage rider who had come to her for a lesson after school. And this young girl was quite tired, having done a full day at school, but she had this brilliant pony and the coach knew what she was capable of. In this particular lesson, she was just a bit flat. She wasn't getting the best out of herself or the pony, and the coach started to get a bit frustrated. And she just said to her, right, stop. I want you to pretend that you're Charlotte de Jardin. Just imagine that you're Charlotte, and I want you to go off and do this. So this girl went off and did it. And of course, what happened? She sat up, 
her whole posture, her whole demeanor changed. And she borrowed for those few minutes, the identity of somebody else. And as a result, her pony completely transformed. And at the end of this, her coach, equally frustrated, said, why don't you do that all the time? That was brilliant. And this girl's response, because I'm not Charlotte Desjardins. And that, for me, really nicely sums up the sort of uh, the challenges we have with identity, that actually we are more than capable of doing great things and amazing things. But often what gets in the way of our consistency to be able to do them is this inner voice, this expectation we have of ourselves. This I probably noticed more in equestrian sport than any other sport or performance industry that I've worked with. And I've often thought about why this is. And I think it's because when we're working with these amazing animals, there are very rarely right answers. We bring a lot of ourselves and our own personality and our own circumstances to our goals. We don't all have the same horse. We don't all have the same amount of money. And therefore, we have different goals. We have different aspirations. And yet, other people are very visible around us. We see what other people and what other horses are doing, and we start to measure ourselves off them. And so we get lost. We get frustrated. We get, um, we get on our own back. And when I'm working with identity with people, fundamentally, I have one thing in mind, and that is to help them be the best version of themselves. Now, I know that probably sounds a little bit nebulous, but I'm interested in their personality. I'm interested, if you're an introvert, how can you be good at riding as an introvert? How can you be okay with that? Because if you try to be an extrovert, you're just trying to be someone that you're not. And you're only going to be a lesser version of someone else. So, for example, if you're an event rider and you're trying to be like Michael Jung, you're only going to be a lesser version of him. Of course, you can learn specific things that you can take from him, from the way that he rides. But if we try to be someone else, we will only ever be a lesser version of them. They've spent their life working on their own strategy, their own system, and it's that system that allows them to turn up and perform with the resources that they have. So part of having a strong identity is about knowing what's available to us and being able to develop our own system to work within our own personality and therefore to be comfortable where we are. It's only by doing this can we own the arena that we're in and everyone can own their own arena. We also have to feel like we deserve to be there on a fundamental level. If we undermine ourselves in that regards, in the story that we're telling ourselves is I don't deserve to be here or other people are far better than me, we are simply drawing our attention away from what has got us there and from our own personal journey. And probably in equestrian sport, more than any other sport, everyone is on their own journey because everyone's circumstances are just so different. And so we cannot make any assumptions about other people's journey and sort of translate that back to our own. We've got to be uh, comfortable and understand the journey that we're on, the progress that we're trying to make. And I think good coaches help riders to do that really well. 
Um, the other thing is giving ourselves permission to do well. And I know that sounds strange, but every athlete at some point has had to have this conversation with themselves whereby they have to give themselves permission to actually beat other people. I, I remember when I was an athlete in sport and modern pentathlon, I joined the Great Britain team and of the five sports, shooting, fencing, swimming, show jumping and running, it was the fencing that I was least experienced at. And as a result, I turned up on the Great Britain team and I got beaten every time in, in, in training. And you know what? I was okay with that because I had no expectations. Of course I get beaten. Everyone's more experienced than me. But over about six months of dedicated training, I was fitter. I had a greater repertoire of moves. I was more precise, more accurate. I was sharper. I was quicker. My distance and my intuition was better. And yet... I was still losing. And I realized with a conversation through my own psychologist at the time, I realized that the reason was because I was still telling the same story about myself uh, that I was telling when I first turned up, which is everyone is better than you and therefore they should win. Now, I probably wasn't doing it explicitly. I wasn't aware of this. It was a very unconscious process, but it was leading me to um effectively it was manifesting in my in my performance so i remember one day i said you know what i'm going to change this story and i focused on all the things that i've made progress in i focused on my own game my own repertoire my own tactics on the fencing piece which is a combat sport so i focused on owning the piece and what that meant i focused on staying relaxed and I turned up to training and I simply focused on my own game from beginning to end, every single point. The opposition, they were just a blur in front of me. I was in charge of what I was there to do. And that night, I didn't just beat my first opponent on the British team, but I beat them 15-3. I wired up against the next opponent, I beat them 15-2. In other words, I didn't just just win. <laughs> I actually thrashed them and that was there in me all the time. I just had to change that story that I was telling myself. So hopefully that gives you a sense of how profoundly important the idea of identity is and the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Now, this is linked to drive and motivation very closely because drive and motivation comes from a place whereby ultimately we love what we do. We do it because we want to do it. We're not doing it because other people expect us to do it. And sometimes it's very easy to get into that trap, especially when we have owners or we have patrons, we, or we're part of a team. We're doing things out of almost an expectation that that's the way that we should do it. And we're not confident enough to articulate our own um, our own system within that process. We allow other people to shout louder and we become almost submissive to the system, to the environment. So it's linked to motivation because we know through research that when we are intrinsically motivated, in other words, when we're doing something for the love of what we do, then we are at our most profoundly powerful. We are we are more focused, we're more persistent in the face of obstacles, 
we overcome challenges because ultimately we love it. And there's a great story to leave you with that kind of sums this notion up. Three boys who loved playing football, but they didn't have anywhere to play. And they found on their housing estates a space to play in up against this old lady's house. And this old lady didn't particularly want them to play football against her house, but she was a clever old thing. So she came out and she said to the boys, look, boys, thank you for coming to play football. She said, here's 50p for your efforts. And if you come back tomorrow, I might be able to give you a bit more. Now, these boys thought, wow, that's incredible. Not only are we doing what we love, but we're getting paid to do it as well. So they carried on playing football. It got dark and eventually they went home. The next day they came back. The old lady comes out and she says, hey, boys, thanks so much for coming back. She said, I'm afraid I haven't got 50p, but I do have 20p each. So here's 20p. Maybe you can come back tomorrow. The boys thought, okay, it's not quite as good as 50p, but it'll do. And they carried on playing football and eventually it got dark and they went back. And the next day they came back and the old lady came out and she said, look, boys, I'm so sorry. I haven't got any money to pay you. And the boys, what did they do? They put the ball underneath their arm and they just sulked off and they didn't play football at all. And that, for me, really nicely sums up what it means to be intrinsically motivated. Very often, we start from that place of intrinsic motivation. We do things because we absolutely love doing it. That is our starting point and that's our end point. And eventually, we start to connect the reason that we do things with external things, with extraneous things. And we start doing it um, for other people. We start doing it out of a sense of obligation or even expectation. And it's at that point where we're perhaps not enjoying it as much. We're not persistent as persistence. We're not as good or resilient at overcoming challenges. So hopefully that makes the point. And if you're interested in this and, and how you can uh, apply this stuff more to your sports and your world, then do join us on at center10.com where we've got a number of courses uh, that I think you'll find really beneficial to your riding. Uh, and also you can join us on social media at Center 10. So thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next session. Thank you, Charlie. Next week, Charlie will talk about the physiological challenge of nerves before following up with a section on the mental challenge in the following episode. Our interview next week will be with show jumper John Whitaker, a member of Britain's recent successful team in Barcelona, of course, as well as his many other accolades and medals during his long career. We'll also review all the week's news, including a look back at Horse of the Year show. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. Goodbye. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.